Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, September the 26th, 2022. For some reason, it's one of the archaic charms, if that's the right word, of the publishing industry. Books always come out on a Tuesday. It's a Monday night tonight. Um, but there's an important book coming out, at least in the United States, tomorrow. And by the time you get this, you can order it online. It might even be in some bookstores uh, already. It came out in the UK uh, about a month ago. Uh, some of you will be familiar with a, a wonderful novel, uh, The Old Drift, a 2019 historical uh, novel by uh, my guest today, Namwali Serpel. And Namwali has a new book out. It's coming out tomorrow, as I said, a Tuesday. Uh, it's her new novel, The Furrows, an Elegy. It's always interesting with a novel when there's almost like a subtitle, particularly uh, the idea of an elegy, which, of course, is uh, a deeply literary and philosophical uh, term. Uh, Namwali, who is joining us from her office at Harvard University in Massachusetts. Uh, welcome. Congratulations, uh, Namwali on the Faroes, an elegy. Um, was that your idea to put the elegy in in the title or was it your publishers? And, and what is meant by it? Well, thank you so much for having me. And it was my idea, which came very late in the revision process of the novel. In some ways, it came very specifically from um, my reader, my, my, my best and uh, most articulate reader, uh, my partner, who suggested that reading the novel felt more like engaging with poetry. And he said, the kind of poem it is, is it's an elegy. And the more that I thought about the relevance of that subtitle, the more it made sense, given what I was trying to access in a discussion of mourning and grief revolving very much around the loss of one black boy. Um. I, of course, as soon as I got the book, looked up Elegy. Uh, we can find it on Wikipedia. You can like, find it on lots of online or offline dictionaries. What would you define the word to mean? So originally, an elegy was just a kind of description of a poetic form. It was like, say, a sonnet, right? So the content was less key than the metrical patterning of something that was called an elegy. And the, the rhythm or meter, in some sense, narratively that I was trying to access, uh, spoke in some sense to that original definition. But the way we think of an elegy now uh, is, of course, as a, as a poem to mourn the dead, um, a poem to honor the dead, uh, to register the sense of loss, but also to reinscribe the lost person in words, song, as a way of preserving their memory. It's a very personal book, Namwali, uh, painfully personal for you, because it's not just a book about a disappearance and a death. 
uh, in fictional terms, but it, it seems to be based on something that you went through in your, your own life. How hard was it to write about this in such a public way? Well, what I would say about that is that the novel is not autofiction. It's not an attempt to reinscribe the autobiographical experiences that I, I've had. I have written a nonfiction essay that is autobiographical about my late sister, Chisha, who is the the person who I lost when I was youngest. I was 18 and she was 22. And that essay was called Beauty Tips for My Dead Sister. And it was published on BuzzFeed um, as a, and it, it's basically a, a, a list of imperatives uh, from my late sister about how to style yourself combined with allusions to the way and the way she died and, and how my family responded to that. So that the process of writing that was very personal, but again, very mediated. It's highly formalized. It's, it's, it, it is a kind of poem as well because it, it works in these single sentences that are set off by, by white space. The Furrows, which I started writing before I wrote that essay, was picking up some of the feelings that the death of my sister drew, you know, or, or sort of pulled up in me. Um, but very little of what the novel covers narratively corresponds at all to the loss of my sister. The novel opens with these two sentences, I don't want to tell you what happened, I want to tell you how it felt. And you can really map that onto my desire to write about grief, which is that I wasn't interested actually in telling you the details of, of my sister's death or how my specific family responded to it. I was interested in trying to enact how it felt because it is in fact an experience that many of us, if not all of us at some point in our lives will go through, which is to lose someone that you love. And my hope really is that the resonance of that experience that my I put my characters through will come through to, to all readers, um, not just to those who've lost a, a child or a sibling. And now we live in an age where everyone writes about how isolated, how lonely we are, I live in an age where it seems as if mental illness is more and more prevalent. Do you think that in our age of fragmentation and isolation, um, dealing with grief is particularly hard? I do. And I think, you know, one of the larger scale subjects of the novel is how isolating grief can be. And even when you are within a family that are the members of which are all ostensibly mourning the same person, you can still feel completely alone in your reality of, of the death that you're that you've witnessed or that you've um, that you're trying to to reconcile for yourself, and that's only exacerbated 
by the actual isolation that you're describing here, which I very much put my character through the death of or potential death. Um, it's there's no body recovered, um, which makes it even harder for the family to to mourn. But the loss of the seven-year-old boy, her brother, when she's 12 years old, ends up fragmenting the family in a very literal fashion. The father, her father moves out, um, marries an, a, another woman, starts his own family far away, and her mother becomes sort of unreachable across a, a psychic space because she doesn't believe that her son has died and creates an organization for missing children called Vigil. And so we have this very specific fracturing that's happening to this family that's putting them all in a very isolated place. And I, I wanted to contrast that to the various ineffective, perhaps inadequate, perhaps, but longstanding traditions mm. that we have for, for mourning the dead. Uh, and so l late in the novel, we, we, we attend a funeral and it is a community event. There are kids running around, there are old people, there are young people, there are conversations. And as banal and cliche as, you know, the condolences that get offered between people can seem, there is at least an attempt to not be alone in your grief. I make it so that my female narrator who begins the novel, Cassandra, doesn't have that. She doesn't have that access to community, partly because she has a black father and a white mother. The black father is the one who leaves. So she doesn't have access to a black community either to mourn the loss of this little black boy. And I think that um, was definitely a, an aim in my book was to, to show exactly how much worse it can be when you are isolated even from uh, your community. Um, and even from your own family. That's a sort of triple isolation. You're isolated from yourself. I mean, obviously from the child you've lost and then from the communities that you should naturally be part of. Exactly. It, it seems, Namali, that much of the history of religion is built around formalizing or institutionalizing grief. What's your theory of that and, 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 and how mm. important is institutional religion in the book? And if, if it isn't mm. in it, is its absence significant? I think it's incredibly important. I mean, I think there there's one version of interpretation that would say that spirituality as such in every cultural formation that it has taken over the course of human history is about trying to grapple with the fact that we die, which is not something that, you know, other animals necessarily um, grapple with in the same way. Although we don't, we know that elephants, for example, have mourning rituals, right, um, around the, the dead. And so, and, and we, we also know that, you know, even our pet dogs sometimes, uh, you know, mourn their, their brother dog that they used to hang out with. So, so grief and mourning, I think, is something that is, is so pervasive as just a, a, a fact of life on earth um, that it, it seems to me that you could make an argument that spirituality as such is, is one of the cultural forms that has been most invested in and interested in uh, this question. Um, in the novel, 
we have uh, the the mother of Cassandra, whose name is Charlotte, uh, grew up Catholic, and she ends up sending Cassandra to a Catholic school. But they are both, neither of them are actually religious, neither of them are believers. And Cassandra wonders at one point when she's encountering her, uh, her mother's friend, she says, I wonder how differently this would have gone if we had had religion to, to fall back on, if we had actually uh, had some kind of ritual or, or ceremony or, or practices. And so, yes, again, the absence of that is exacerbating the isolation that I was describing uh, earlier. I also think there's a moment where um, Cassandra refers to the, the series of therapists that she visits in the first half of the novel as, uh, as kind of practicing a kind of catechism. They ask questions and she gives the same answers every time about the experience, but, it, but, but she doesn't actually get anywhere with that. But it becomes a kind of substitute for the religion that would otherwise have uh, taken the, the, you know, allowed her and her family to process their grief had they been um, religious. So yes, I was. I think I was interested there in, in pursuing the the absence of that and the and the way that certain things have come to replace it in modern life. I feel you know in the second half of the book, we have a, a, a switch to a character who is has the name of of Cassandra's brother uh, Wayne, and he's an adult, and there's a. a kind of sneaking suspicion for her that this is this is who her brother would have been or actually became um, because there was no body found. Maybe he survived. Maybe he became this man. And I think her isolation actually makes her project desire onto this man in a way that is meant to be deeply unsettling uh, for the reader. When we turn to his perspective, we learn that, no, he's not her brother. And we also learn that he himself is dealing with grief, having lost both of his parents. So it's a kind of obverse of the mourning that's going on in Cassandra's family. And he eventually finds, when he's living on the streets, um, a kind of father figure. And it's a, it's a man named Mo, which is short, we learn, from Muhammad. And Mo is obsessed with the Quran. So I introduced there another mm. religious paradigm that offers a particular interpretation of how we deal with death, but also very specifically how we deal with time. So if the catechism in Catholicism is about ritual and repetition that for at least Cassandra doesn't seem to get you anywhere, what I'm interested in in the Quran is the uh, eruption of very apocalyptic language around spirituality. And there I'm interested in time as a series of eruptions or catastrophes. And so in some ways I'm thinking about religion less in relationship to death itself and more in relationship to how we think about time. Yeah, the idea of grief and death is of course, they naturally go together, but one can grieve so many other things as well. What's special about, and I use that word carefully about death and grief. I mean, mm -hmm. when you think of parents and children, for example, sometimes mm -hmm. 
parents lose children even if they don't die and vice versa. Yeah. Is, 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 uh, are you using death in, in some ways? I mean, you're obviously a very metaphorical writer on lots mm -hmm. of levels. Um, are you using death as a metaphor here? I mean, it's not literal, right? It is literal. I mean, I, 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 I think the difference, I do think there's a difference. We, 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 we talk about mourning the loss of someone like, a, you know, a romantic partner, you know, mm. I'm grieving, you know, after a divorce or after a breakup. Um, but I think that the, the specificity of death has something to do with the, t the question of temporality I was just discussing, which is that we are temporal beings as humans. We live in time, we move through time, and it is the cessation of that movement through time, the, the lack of uh, a, a perpetuity or a, a continuation of a life that I think puzzles us so deeply that the mind actually constructs all kinds of things. I mean, I was saying earlier, spirituality seems to me to be an, an elaborate attempt to understand what happens after death, because, you know, this is where we get the notion of an afterlife or the notion of reincarnation, because we can't imagine time itself stopping completely forever. And I think, you know, if even if you break up with someone, um, they're still existing. They still, they, there's still a continuity there. So there's, there's a way in which it's actually easier to grapple with the loss of a person who's still around. I think, you know, the mind, the human mind, it finds the cessation of time in literal death so unfathomable that it constitutes this, or it, it, it uh, catalyzes these, again, elaborate cultural constructions. So I mentioned spirituality, but literature is also mm. obsessed with this. It's obsessed with what happens after we die. Are there shades in Hades? What Can I go and visit my father or my lover in Hades? Can I, and what happens when you're in Hades? Like, what, I mean, Dante's Inferno, the Odyssey, you know, I, I'm teaching this week Hamlet. Hamlet is all about his inability to feel any kind of resolution around the mourning of his dead father and the invention of ghosts or the, I mean, some people will think, will say that they're not invented, that ghosts actually exist. But if we think that they are conjuring, you know, conjurings of our mind, they are again, an attempt for us to try to understand what happens after, like, is there an after? And I think that to me means that the specificity of, of death as loss, uh, was worth pursuing in novelistic form, um, not necessarily just as a metaphor. The metaphors in the novel really are an attempt to understand this very real thing, which is... Yeah, but uh, which it's, is as you say, it's an unanswerable question, which in a sense, yeah. grief gets answered or grief diverts the question. I, I, I'm curious, mm. you're talking about writing. Um, mm -hmm. You quote a, a Toni Morrison... Um, uh, you, you quote Tony Morrison on your, your Twitter page. Uh, you, you quote uh, Morrison saying, I, or writing, it, it must have been writing rather than saying, I read books, I teach books, I write books, I think about books, it's one job. Um, you're obviously doing the same sort of thing. But given yeah. um, what you just said about writing and grief, mm -hmm. Are you mm -hmm. suggesting that all writing itself perhaps originates with grief? 
it's not always about grief, of course, but mm. um, it's perhaps the origins of writing. I mean, this is... uh, you know, you, you mentioned Homer, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the origins of writing and is, is a way to, to formalize grief I think that... some, some way around. Yeah, I mean, if you think about, um, you know, one of my favorite Milton poems is Lycidas, which is um, about the morning, mourning his friend. And I think, you know, there are one thing that I that, you know, if you if you think about writing as a very literal thing, not just literature, but actually the inscription of things uh onto papyrus or or cuneiform mm. into stone or what have you if you there are certain thinkers philosophers uh, french critical theory is very influential for me so someone like jacques derrida would say yes it originates in death and the reason that it does is that what writing presumes is that this thing that I have inscribed, this message, will outlive me. So the, uh, the reader of that message can receive it. And you could, you could have died since you put it in the mail or since you, you know, sent it uh, on a boat. And this suggests that there's always hovering over every written word the possibility that the person who wrote it is is no longer there. Um, Roland Barthes says a similar thing about photography, actually, that when we see a photograph, one of the things that's always hovering over it is, is this person alive? Uh, because, but there's a trace of them that has somehow exceeded their death. And many, many writers, I mean, I think uh, in Plato's Symposium, in Shakespeare, mm. you see this everywhere. The way I achieve immortality is through writing down my thoughts, creating something. I have left my mind on the page, even though my body may be festering in the ground, right? And I think that, so I think it's a, it's an interesting way to think about it. it. It's a haunting way to think about it, right? We think about literature and entertainment and, and even religion as, as spaces of, uh, of potential joy and delight and comfort. But I think that they are always haunted by this fact, right, which is that we are we are humans, therefore we are mortal, and that mortality becomes a kind of limit that I don't know has has yielded some of the most incredible works of art that we've we've ever had. The pyramids, the great pyramids, are tombs, right? I mean, I, I it's hard for me to maybe I'm just on on a on a roll. Have now you been to those tombs under Paris? Everything. What are they yeah. called? The ones in Paris. Um... You know, Which the, ones? The, in the Paris, when you uh, no, in Paris, you know where the, the, the there are these oh the catacombs of tomb, the catacombs underneath mm, the city yeah or no, in I Buenos mean... Aires uh, the the massive uh, 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 burial grounds above which which are a form of architecture yeah I mean if you think about religion again like one of the most depicted you know, things that we have in, in the history of art is Christ on the cross at the moment of his death. You know, it's a really odd obsession that we have with it. But I, I think, you know, I don't want it to sound like I'm being, mm, I don't know, too morbid. I actually think that if we 
if we consider death, if we confront death, and this is a kind of Nietzschean idea, if we confront the darkest possible things, this is precisely how we can live. We, we, we can't disavow the fact of death. Death is everywhere. Um, that's a, and that's actually a quote from the novel. Um, you knew this, death is everywhere. Um, but that doesn't necessarily uh, mean that we have to be anxious or sad about it. it. It actually is, I think, both the condition for life and if what we're saying is has any accuracy at all, it might be the, the very condition of art. And then, Wiley, finally, um, you mentioned earlier the heroine, and if that's the right word, of the book was sort of alienated from her own community. She was biracial, mm. so she was sort of stuck in the middle, if that's the right way of putting it. Sure. In a way, um, you're also stuck in the middle. Um, you're, you're described as an American and Zambian writer. Uh, you're yeah. sort of caught, in, and, and, and I'm not sure how painful it is, caught between two continents, two worlds, two cultures. But you're also bringing us wisdom as a, as a wonderful writer, as someone who has given a great deal of thought to this. Do you think that really when it comes down to it in terms of making sense of grief, we might need to escape our communities, our certainties? Oh, wow. That's a very interesting question. You know, I think that we have a very long history of artist figures in particular. And, you know, even the depiction of prophets and priestesses as mm. well as nomadic, as exiles. And I haven't quite figured out why that is. As you say, is it necessary? But I have come to understand that it is something to embrace rather than something to push away. Uh, that said, I feel very much the way that, um, I think Toni Morrison says this about being uh, both black and female, that they don't cancel each other out. Um, or exist as a kind of impasse or scylla and charybdis that you're stuck between, that they actually are additive. So be, I don't feel stuck between being Zambian and American. I feel I am both Zambian and American and that that is only to the good. Um, it, I, I, and the same, I feel the same way about you know, racial identity. I think um, to think of, of the being mixed race as some kind of tragedy because you're neither one nor the other, I think doesn't do justice to the extent to which you are, you have the advantage of what Du Bois called second sight uh, in, in his definition of double consciousness. People think of double consciousness as, which is something I riff on very much in the novel, which has du doubles and doppelgangers and, and doublings and, um, this idea of an internal schism uh, is very prevalent in the novel, but double consciousness is also double. It's also, you get, you get to see from both sides. And that I think is a remarkable privilege of the artist um, or the, the nomad, the person who, who moves between different communities. Well, the book is out tomorrow. And the nice thing about books 
in contrast to us humans is they never die do they no more it's true it's well one <laughs> hopes one yeah. hopes <laughs> uh, i mean maybe you'll write the next novel will be uh this novel is about i guess death in a way or imagine death and uh, and um mourning the furrows and uh, maybe your next book will be about birth uh, but congratulations yes, actually, it actually is, it? is. <laughs> yeah it's about pregnancy so that's <laughs> is it written uh it's that one is not fully written i have another book that is about two-thirds written which is uh -huh. uh, which is also well, about, I won't ask, if, I won't ask like, if it's yeah. autobiographical. Um, <laughs> no, no, they never are. They never are with me. Good. Well, uh, lovely to talk. Fascinating conversation. Congratulations on the book. I think it's going to be a major. I mean, it was one of the most anticipated books already for 2022. I think it'll be major work by major. I don't know whether you're a new talent or an old new talent. And I'm Wally Scapel. Congratulations. Lovely to talk to you. And congratulations so on the birth of the borough. <laughs> Thank you very much. It was lovely to speak with you.